We're reading today from Genesis chapter 1, starting from verse 26 and going right through to chapter 2, verse 7. Quite a long reading, so hang on in there. We're halfway through the creation story, just coming to the sixth day. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, on the student theme, we have Sam here, and uh, he's going to be uh, speaking to us on this passage now. Hello, it's lovely to be with you. Um, Yeah, I wasn't on the video. I'm sticking around next year. Um, I'm on a four-year course, so you'll see much more of me. Um, As Sam said, my name is also Sam. Uh, If you want to get to know me a little bit better, my surname is King. Uh, Sadly, that has no relation to royalty. I quite often wish it did. Um, But growing up, things like schools, if you you did exams, you know you always write your surname first. Uh, So being able to write King Samuel was quite a nice nice confidence piece at the start of exams. But it makes you think, doesn't it? If If it's not your name that declares you as royalty, what does it mean to be royalty? You might take 
um, uh, a couple of moments and think about that and come up with different answers as to what it means. You might say that it's something that we construct as a society um, and that if a population don't give you the authority to be their king or queen, um, as history tells us, they'll definitely uh, put you in your place and remove you from that position. Or you might go down a more technical route and you might say that to be royalty, to be a monarch, means to go through uh, quite a weird historic ceremony with lots of tradition. Um, and I guess in that country, or in our country, sorry, that's what it is. I haven't been alive long enough to be through a coronation. Does anyone remember the last coronation? Anyone? Yeah, I haven't done enough laps of the sun. But I've, I have watched it, and it is quite a remarkable ceremony. Um, and there are some really profound Christian biblical principles at the heart of it. And one of my favorites comes um, towards the end. Uh, they've been sat on the throne. They've got all the regalia on them. And they're handed this beautiful black leather Bible. And it's gold-leafed. And they're sat there. And then these words are read over them as they're handed the Bible. We present you with this book. The most valuable thing that mankind can afford. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Um, I think they're very powerful words. Uh, and we're going to be exploring that a little bit um, both this week and in the coming uh, five or six weeks. If you're new to us here at ENC, we're going through Andy Ollerton's book, The Bible, a story, of, uh, a story that makes sense of life. Um, do come along on Tuesday evening to Andy's Q&A. And in his book, Andy goes through six of the underlying themes that we see time and time again in the Bible. And this afternoon, we're going to be looking at the first of those, which is meaning. What does it mean to be uh, alive? What does it mean to be a human? And what does it mean to be a Christian, ultimately? Thousands of gallons of ink and many, many hours have been spent answering this question. And you may well have some kind of brief ideas that popped into your head about what does it mean to be alive? Um, but this afternoon, we're going to break it down into three smaller questions. Um, it's something we do a lot in my math degree, break it into smaller, easier problems. And we'll, we'll work through those questions, and hopefully uh, we'll get somewhere. So if you can have the slides up, the first question that we're going to look at is where do we find our meaning? Who do we give the authority to decide who defines our meaning? Then we'll look a little bit um, at the meaty questions, what actually is our meaning, and we'll dive into our reading from Genesis. And then we'll look at um, the practical ways that we can live out that meaning. We talked about the Bible being precious, didn't we? Precious is an active, doing word. It's one thing to know the truth that this book contains, to know the lively oracles of God. It's another thing entirely to act upon it and treat it as precious in an active way. So, first of all, our first question, where do we go to find our meaning and who decides? Um, there are a couple of famous answers to these sorts of questions. Uh, one of the best is a guy called Oswald Chambers, who is a 20th century Scottish preacher. And his answer is this, holiness and not happiness is the chief end of man. I quite like that one. Or you could go with another guy, an American pastor, who said that man's chief end is to glorify God. Now, there's wonderful, wonderful truth in both of these statements. But I think it's really helpful to start right at the beginning, to start with our creation story, to start with our origins. Uh, in the reading that we had wonderfully read to us, we hear from Genesis um, that God creates us out of nothing. Right at the beginning, God is the one that forms us. 
I don't know if you've ever been to modern art galleries. Um, they puzzle me. They're places that I don't necessarily understand. But nevertheless, every now and then, I'm dragged along with family or with friends. Um, and quite often, you'll be stood there, and you'll have a wonderful sculpture in front of you. And you'll, you just won't know what to make of it. You, you kind of look, and you're looking at different angles. And maybe you shine a light, and it does something. And it just makes no sense. And you might discuss with the people you've come with, and they don't really understand, and you're trying to find some clever hidden meaning and reflection on society. But very thankfully, if you go to the other side, there's a tiny little plaque, isn't there? And it gives you a biography of the artist, and maybe that is a place where you can find the true meaning. And for us, when we think about ourselves and our meaning, it only makes sense to read that plaque and to go back and see what God says right in the beginning. We can definitely come up with answers on our own, can't we? And we, we could get pretty close, probably. But it only makes sense to give God the first and the final word on our meaning. We want to fully grasp our meaning. We need to view our Bibles as precious. When we give the Bible the authority that it deserves, as Andy said a couple of weeks back to us, when we view it as uniquely valuable, it has the power to define who we are. It has the power to change us and give us a meaning going forward. If we read the story of our origins, if we read the beginning of Genesis without viewing it as precious, we can still know this truth, but we don't act on it and we don't grasp it for ourselves and grasp the life-changing implications of it. Jesus talks time and time again, doesn't he, about the difference between knowing a truth and living it out, knowing a fact and implementing it in our day-to-day -day lives. We as Christians need to allow God to define actively, time and time again, who we are. We need to let our creator, the one who created our innermost beings and knitted us together, speak over us, both through his Bible and as we pray and spend time in relationship with him. It only makes sense, friends, to let God have the definition of who we are. Because God's words will drown out the noise of this world, the opinions of the world that are spoken over us about who we were made to be and why we are here. There's a really important relationship between our origins and our identity, where we have come from in the past and where we are heading. And Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, is not a magic textbook of how. It's not a scientific book that you're going to study in a chemistry degree or something, but it's a confirmation of why. It breathes into us confidence of why we are put here. The creation story that we've read, and I have to confess I was slightly cheeky, a question to ask Andy on, um, on Tuesday is why we have a Genesis 1 and a Genesis 2. Uh, there's lots of thoughts about that, and that's one for him, not me, I'm afraid. Um, but do, do go and ask him that on Tuesday. But we read in our reading, didn't we, that we have a God who creates the world. He is in complete control. And we need to frame our human story within that, a good God who is in complete control. We are not in control, and we're not meant to be in control. Right from the beginning, God defines who we are. Genesis 1 opens with, in the beginning, God. He was there. There are radical implications when we put God at the beginning as we start to answer these questions. So that's the answer to our first question, where do we find our meaning? I think it's only logical and only right if we let God have that say and listen to what he has to say about us. So now as we dig into Genesis, do open your Bibles if you've closed them. Um, it would be helpful to have it open at Genesis 1 verse 26. 
we're going to be looking at uh, the second question. What actually is our meaning? This is the meaty part, I guess, isn't it? And within this, there are three smaller points that we're going to touch on. Ultimately, we are created to reflect God, aren't we? We're made in God's likeness. That's clear from the beginning. And so there are three key aspects of God that we're reflected as we are made. The first one is to enjoy knowing God. Look at verse 27 and chapter 2, verse 7 with me. How amazing is that? That we are made in God's likeness. We are created by him. For us as Christians, we know from Jesus' teaching that the most important commandment is to know God and to love him, to be in communion with him. And verse 7 of chapter 2 explains and helps us with that. God breathes his life into us. It's God's breath in our lungs that is helping us live out a life of intimacy with our Father. Um, If you have a smartphone with with you, I wonder if you'll get it out and uh, do something with me, turn it on. If you've recorded the England game, try not to turn your data on or Wi-Fi on to get the score. And go onto onto your camera setting and spend a moment on selfie mode or admiring yourself, I guess. Um, <laughs> but spend, spend a moment with me pondering what God has created. He has made you uniquely. He has formed you. We are not simply evolving DNA, but we are sacred beings with eternal significance. Um, Psalm 139 talks about us being created in our mother's wombs, brought together by God, created for him and through him. A famous prayer of St. Augustine's went like this, you made me for yourself, O God, and my heart will always be restless until I find you. Right from the beginning, we're created to know God, we're created from him and we're created to be with him. We're not designed to be alienated from him. We're meant to be in communion and relationship with him. God, throughout the Bible, there's a call for us to glorify him, isn't there? And C.S. Lewis notes that to glorify God is exactly the same as the quote I read earlier, that man's chief aim is to glorify. C.S. Lewis links the two. To glorify is to enjoy. You can't do one without the other. That's quite challenging, isn't it? Do we enjoy God or do we just live with him? There's a rejoicing that we see time and time and time again in the Bible, a call to enjoy what God has made. So that's the first part um, of section two, I guess. Uh, The first purpose that we're created from in Genesis is to enjoy knowing God. The second part is to flourish in relationship. Look with me at verse 26 in Genesis 1. There's a tricky little word in there. There's a plural, us, our, we. And if you're reading that and you're just kind of skipping through, it might not stick out, but it's quite strange, isn't it? We, we think, or at least I think, of just a bearded man with a walking stick and he's clicking, clicking his fingers and stars are appearing. But that's not what we see at all. We know from John chapter 1, the testimony of Jesus Um, that Jesus was there right at the beginning. In Genesis 1 verse 2, before our reading, the Holy Spirit is hovering on the waters. Again, right from the beginning of the lively oracles of God, we have a trinity, we have unity. And it's that unity that we're created out of. 
We are created out of God's perfect unity. Our origins are not from some lonely bearded man, but from unity. Psalm 133 talks about the blessing that flows when we reflect that unity and the blessing that flows when we embrace that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And later on from our reading um, that we had today, the reason that God brings Eve in is because it's not good for Adam to be alone. God creates Eve so that we have company, we have unity, we have fellowship. Friendships are vitally important gifts that help us walk in community. Jesus never sends his disciples out alone, does he? And we see um, throughout the Bible with David and Jonathan, with Elijah and Elisha, and with Ruth and Naomi, and more and more examples are there. We're created to do this journey with others, to be sharpened by our Christian friends, our brothers and sisters. The book of Proverbs, basically every single chapter has something else to say about what good biblical friendship is. We here at Network are built upon um, our formations, groups of four or five people that meet together each week to pray for each other. Um, If that's something you want to get involved in, drop the office an email. But they're brilliant at bringing us together week by week, praying for each other and doing this journey as we grow closer to God in community, as we were created to be. Created to be in unity, created from unity. So that's the second point. So the two we've had so far are that we are created um, to enjoy knowing God and we're created to flourish in relationship. And then our third part that we see, again, this is really clear. We're called and we're created to steward the earth's resources. If you were here with us last week, um, we were joining in with the Church of England initiative uh, of uh, Climate Sunday. And um, this is definitely about climate, but it's about more. It's about stewarding everything God's given us, our time, our money. It's about seeing everything we have as a privilege and not a right. I kind of feel slightly sorry for Adam and Eve in some way because they're in this beautiful garden. They've got wonderful plants and flowers. The sun's probably shining, um, but they can't just sit around and sunbathe, sadly. The first commandment that God gives them is to be fruitful and increase in number, almost to take Eden on tour, to spread out, to subdue chaos, and to bring order. All of life is spiritual, and every task that we do is in some way sacred. We are called to steward all that we have, all our resources, to give glory to God and to honor him with everything and in everything, to view what we have as privilege and not as right. So that's the end of the the kind of three meaty purposes, to enjoy knowing God, number one, to flourish in our relationships, and to steward what we've so graciously been given. We started by looking at the how, um, giving God the opportunity to speak over us his truth. We talked about the what's, to enjoy knowing God, to flourish, and to steward. And then we have the really key point, the active part. Viewing God's word as precious, as we said, is an active, ongoing thing. How are we going to do that? Um, I'd like to read to you, if I may, a little passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I think this will really help us to frame how we live this out. Uh, This is verses 4 to 7, if you want to read along with me. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. I wonder if you know a couple of these key words that link into the coronation service. Jesus Christ, the word as John calls him, is precious. We're told that to be Christians is to view Christ as precious. And we see what it truly means to be royalty, not to have a name like mine, sadly, but to view Christ as our saviour. It beautifully symbolises what it means when we view our meaning in the light of Christ. There's a nice bit of Christian jargon in there, royal priesthood. That very simply, the royal part refers to being adopted into God's family and inheriting the earthly resources. And to be a priesthood is to stand in the gap between heaven and between earth and to pray your kingdom come, O Lord. Now notice how these two things, to be a royal priesthood, notice how those two encapsulate the three parts that we talked about. To be a royal priesthood, to be in God's family, i.e. in relationship with him, to be inheritors of the resources, to be a priesthood, to be standing in community and in fellowship, that encapsulates those three purposes, doesn't it? As we view Christ as precious, as we're built into a royal priesthood, into this spiritual stone building, from there, we fulfill those three points about our meaning from Genesis. That is the heavenly royalty that we're invited into, the meaning that we're called from the beginning of time. As we allow God to define our meaning, we allow him to show us more of his power and his holiness. I wonder how easy you find it to enjoy God. How easy you find it to flourish in your relationships with those around you or to steward what God's given you. The Bible is uniquely valuable, and when we embrace that, it has the authority to redefine who we are and the lives that we lead. To discover our meaning, we need to see what God says about our origins and allow ourselves to spend time getting to know our Father more deeply. There's no substitute for spending time with him, for growing in relationship with him.